Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, March the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined today by our political editor, Pat Leahy. Hi, Pat. Morning, Hugh. And I'm delighted to welcome Piers Doherty, Sinn Féin's finance spokesperson. Hi, Piers. Hi, Hugh. Hi, Pat. I'll come to you in a sec, Piers, but Pat, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, and this touches on some of the subjects we're hoping to talk with Piers about today, emergency measures on excise duty on fuel announced by the government over the last few hours. And you have a story in today's newspaper about a broader briefing given to government on the potential implications of the fallout from the from the current war in Ukraine, um, some of which are quite grim. Uh, yeah, on the first thing, first, I suppose, we're just reporting this morning that the cabinet has uh, agreed uh, to adjust excise rates on fuel, so it'll be twenty cents off a uh, a liter of petrol and fifteen cents off a liter of diesel. We understand there'll be a press conference shortly, which I guess will have taken place by the time we're broadcasting this. But um, and I guess then it'll be uh, it'll have to go through the door later. I presume that um, uh, Pearson's colleagues in the opposition will be briefed on this by uh, government and it'll happen in the Dáil uh, later. But more broadly on the um, uh, on the question of yesterday's briefings at Cabinet, yeah, there was a, a large memo brought to Cabinet by the Taoiseach. I'm told it was about 100 pages long. Jack Horgan Jones has many of the, the details from it in this morning's paper and it outlined for ministers just the scale of the, the threats uh, that face Ireland and the risks that the uh, the war in Ukraine has brought to things like food prices, uh, potential shortages of key materials, um, you know, jobs threatened, economic growth threatened, exchequer receipts likely to, uh, to, to fall off. All that is in concert with an unprecedented influx of refugees. We've been hearing numbers of anywhere up to 100,000 in, uh, in, in recent days. Uh, and as well as that, what the ministers are being told to consider is, you know, things like the threat of, uh, of cyber attacks. And we saw last year just how devastating that can be on, uh, on key services. So, you know, after, after Brexit, after the pandemic, you know, now we're faced with another set of challenges that will, depending on how events play out over the coming weeks and months, will have a profound uh, impact on, uh, on societies, no doubt about that. Indeed, and Pierce, from your perspective as finance spokesperson, I think I'm right in saying that Sinn Féin were looking for some relief for fuel consumers anyway in this case. Do you think this excise cut goes far enough? Yeah, look, we've we've been calling for this for for quite a while. That there there needs to be a real package there to support families, even beyond the issue of uh, of of fuel. 
um, what we we were raising this yesterday in the doll with the the the, the Mary Lou during leaders' questions, it, it appeared that there was no proposal then, but we had uh, leaks then that that last night that they were going to bring something to cabinet. Uh, I don't think it goes far enough. Uh, what we were arguing for uh, was an immediate uh, reduction in excise duty on petrol and diesel that would bring the price to one euro seventy five, which is a very high price, and we recognise that. Um, but uh, and and then to, to to try and keep it at that, so further excise cuts if if need be. Many of us would have known yesterday. Uh, or would have heard that there was uh, uh, likely increases going to happen on, uh, in different places throughout the country uh, yesterday and last night and this morning. We've already seen that f- uh, filter through um, in, in Letterkenny, in, in, in the filling station where I, I stopped myself. Usually when I come up to Dublin, uh, the price of diesel is €2.20 this morning. Uh, in Blessington, it's two thirteen. In places in Clare, it's two twelve, two fifteen. In Longford, it's two fifteen. Uh, so these prices, that this measure that's going to be brought forward by the government government uh, later tonight, uh, will mean that in those filling stations you'll still be paying two euro uh, for a liter of diesel, and in some cases above that. And that's not good enough. That that price is far too high uh, for consumers. And look, the sanctions and the war in Ukraine, the sanctions and trying to tighten that squeeze on Russia are absolutely uh, necessary, important. But we also need to then protect uh, those that are vulnerable, our consumers, our citizens here in Ireland as a result of the impact of those sanctions uh, to as a great extent as possible. And I believe that having uh, prices at the pumps of, of two euro or thereabouts uh, is simply not good enough. What I'm very, very concerned about is that we're hearing absolutely nothing in terms of home heat and oil. Uh, so we were also putting forward the proposal that we needed to eliminate uh, excise duty on home heat and oil. Uh, which would give a, a relief uh, to those spiralling costs. Um, since the start of the year, uh, a fill of home eating oil has gone up by €700. Euro. Now, there's families across the state that simply didn't budget for an extra €700 euro to fill up their tank uh, when the time came. Uh, and those prices are continuing to rise right across. They're rising now on a daily basis. There is nothing coming from government that we're hearing in relation to home heat and oil. Uh, we have to see uh, movement in excise. We have to see further movement in that. And I think that also speaks to the fact that the proposal that we had put forward to government uh, at the start of the year, which was cost of living cash payments, uh, need to be brought forward with, as a matter of urgency as well. I mean, Pierce's point in relation to home heating oil, I, I noticed, Pat, earlier this week we were reporting that, that the fuel companies were actually putting a cap on how much people could fill up their tanks because people were trying to get ahead of what is clearly a continually rising curve in terms of prices right now and into the future. But more broadly, these sort of immediate measures to do with the prices at the petrol pumps or indeed home heating oil, they're only one part of the picture, aren't they? Because, I mean, we already had um, a level of inflation that we hadn't seen for decades uh, in the country and indeed across the Western world. And I'm listening to economists this week who are saying that that's going to be uh, worsened considerably and we could be up to close to 10% inflation uh, before the middle of this year. And that then creates a, a demand politically for all kinds of measures to protect people, particularly more vulnerable and less well-off people. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's very difficult to call where events in Ukraine are going to go over over the coming weeks. Uh, You know, I think that probably the next week, two weeks are really crucial in in setting the course for the entire world for, uh, for the foreseeable future. But, you know, no matter how you, you know, try and game it out, as to what might happen in Ukraine, it seems that, you know, a quick resolution of it just isn't among the realistic possibilities. So we're facing, 
you know, dealing with these, not just the sanctions, but also like the direct effects of uh, of the war in Ukraine on things like grain supplies and that will feed into food prices probably pretty quickly. I mean, I think you probably see the price of, of bread go up pretty quickly. So yes, we're looking at a period of probably sustained high inflation at a time of great economic uncertainty for for treasuries, for public finances, uh, for the public finances, not just here, but in uh, in countries uh, across the Western world. And of course, when finance ministers see, uh, you know, when they see threats to their revenues, uh, then they become an awful lot more reluctant to uh, agree to subsidies such as we're going to see today. So, uh, you know, without wishing to sound too gloomy about it, it seems to me there's a very difficult time ahead, not just politically uh, in global terms, uh, but economically. And I want to ask you, Pierce, in a moment about, you know, Sinn Féin's take on that from a, from an economic perspective, obviously. But before we do, just before we leave the, the current crisis behind, the Taoiseach was calling yesterday for a debate on the changed security environment in Europe and what Ireland's position should be within that into the future. There was even talk. There was even talk of a of a citizens' assembly. And um, what do you make of that? Well, look, you know that we've heard a lot of comments now in relation to the issue of uh, Ireland's neutrality. Uh, we've heard uh, comments in relation to some arguing that you know Ireland should join NATO. Um, you know, I would put the question back to the the likes of the Tisha, back to Simon Coveney, back to Leo Varadkar, who've been kind of indicating this uh, trajectory in the time ahead, that if we were to join NATO, we would have an obligation that we would have to increase our uh, spending on defence by 2% of GDP annually. Uh, now, 2% seems like not a huge amount of, uh, a number, but that's 7 billion euro. So what are they going to cut or what tax increases are they going to pose in the Irish people so we can beef up our military capacity in terms of joining NATO or one of those alliances? I think that's not where the Irish people want. You can see in terms of polling that was carried out very recently that people value our neutrality, people recognise our neutrality, people recognise the role that we've had in UN peacekeeping missions and the fact that we are a neutral country allows us to have that voice at an international stage. I also see in other polling that actually people want to see us preparing for Irish unity and one of the ways that we can do that is have a, a, a citizens assembly but the Taoiseach for some reason despite there's no demand for it uh, despite people are quite satisfied in terms of having a, a neutral position in the state and not uh, you know joining uh, military alliances uh, that he is arguing for a, a citizens assembly not an Irish unity but actually on, on looking at whether uh, neutrality should be a, 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 an issue that is in our past and not in our future and I think that is the wrong uh, approach. I think that our, our election to the UN Security Council is an example of a voice that we can have at, at that type of forum, which was by and large uh, supported by countries because of our neutral position, because we have uh, an unaligned position. And that's a, a neutral position militarily, but it's never been a case that we had a neutral position politically. And rightly so, uh, Ireland has been calling out to a person uh, the, 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 the invasion uh, of Russia and Ukraine, uh, that aggressive behaviour by Putin and, and and his regime, uh, and we have do, we have done that in other circumstances as well. So I, I would be very very disappointed uh, that this conversation is is taking place. And again, as I say, you know, for those who are arguing about you know let's join NATO and let's be part of that type of military alliance, 
let them tell me where they're going to get the 7 billion euro to actually come up to that level uh, that NATO requires on, on member states. But it's not just a binary choice between our current neutrality and NATO, is it? I mean, there are questions about whether the triple lock mechanism is appropriate for, for Ireland's place in the world. And there's obviously there's the recent report on the defence forces, which I think most people would agree, I'm sure Sinn Féin would as well, have been have been neglected and underfunded in recent years. I mean, Sinn Féin can't be happy, for example, that our sovereign state relies on the RAF to protect our air perimeter around the Atlantic, are they? No, but they, there is a, the commission, uh, the report that was done in relation to the, the future of the Defence Forces needs to be very seriously considered because it set out very clearly that there has been underfunding of our Defence Forces uh, for many, many years. And there are areas within the neutral militaristic uh, position that we have to actually look at. We have to look at the paying condition of our Defence Forces. We have to look at cybersecurity, a very big issue. We have to know, we have to look at the civilian in- infrastructure that we have to have. We need to make sure that we have the radar capacity. Uh, capacity and capability. And these are things that have been not just flagged up in relation to recent reports, um, but actually they've been flagged up a number of years ago, um, but have been gone either non-funded or underfunded by, by, by member states or by the, by the state. Um, but that is completely separate in relation to being involved in alliances either at EU level that are uh, militaristic or at, uh, at a NATO level, uh, where there is a requ- requirement on member states when you are involved in those type of uh, alliances to actually beef up uh, not just those uh, defence of your airspace and, 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 and waters and making sure that you have the necessary equipment and, and facilities for cyber security, but actually to, to beef up uh, more militaristic uh, areas of, of defence spending. And I, I don't think that's the right approach. As I said, Ireland as a neutral country has served as well. We have uh, international standing uh, as a result of our role in terms of a neutral co- country. And, you know, in all wars, the, 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 there will be talks, there will be settled there will be uh, agreements at the end. And I think that Ireland needs to be that voice in an international stage in relation to diplomacy, in relation to uh, a, a country that doesn't carry baggage uh, and that is respected by all sides to be that, that, uh, that, that fair broker. I just want to ask Pierce one question relating to the neutrality debate. And that's that I think Pierce is right. There's no public clamour to join NATO. I'd be really surprised if that comes onto the political agenda here. But I think that the question of an EU defence pact, which already exists to, to some degree, is much more realistic. And I think we will see a push from particularly the French, perhaps as early as tomorrow's uh, informal summit at Versailles, for a, a more meaningful EU pact, which would be defensive uh, in nature, but recognising the fact that the security situation in Europe, and particularly for Eastern European members of the EU, has been changed dramatically by the invasion of Ukraine. And I do think that will come on the agenda. And if there is to be any sort of meaningful EU defensive pact uh, uh, in, in military terms, it will require a referendum here. And so the question, I suppose, for, for Pierce at this stage is, would Sinn Féin oppose that referendum if it comes to that? Yeah, Pat, very clearly, because that would undermine our our neutrality. And uh, I'm conscious of the way that you frame the question in terms of a defence pact. But uh, uh, for that pact to be engaged in, 
uh, you would have to involve yourself in, in, in those military actions. Now, we've seen the government has pushed for a more militarised EU through its support for the permanent structure and cooperation through PRESCO. Uh, that would see Ireland participate in EU military and strategic goals. It would see us have to increase funding uh, in terms of research, in terms of EU military research in line with uh, uh, NATO missions. So there has been a creep um, for, for, for many, many years in relation to those uh, in Europe who believe that there needs to be uh, that type of EU army, that type of um, that type of um, a, a vision for, for for Europe. We have a very different view in relation to that. I think the vast vast majority of the Irish people have a different view in relation to it. But there are areas in terms of Europe where there has to be defence. So cyber security is a huge issue. You know, there's a huge threat at the minute in terms of Russia. We could possibly be attacked. We've seen the HSE being attacked. So there needs to be cooperation in relation to that. But in terms of military, a militarised EU, I think that is the the, the, the wrong approach in, in, in my view and in the party's view. So yes, we would oppose a referendum if that were to come about. I want to turn to economics now. Pat, if you could set the stage here. I struggle to think of another equivalent European country which for the entirety of its existence as an independent state, 100 years in the case of the state in which we're in at the moment, we've never had a government led by a party of the left or indeed the centre-left. And it seems more than possible now, going by opinion polls in the current state of the parties, and that we will see that after the next election in the form of Sinn Féin. From the point of view of the way that this country does its business, both internally and externally, and the way it orders its society, is that going to be a very significant breakpoint point of change in the history of the state? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I think it would be an enormous moment were Sinn Féin to lead uh, the next government. And you're right, you look at the opinion polls and, you know, you see Sinn Féin consistently with a lead of 10 to 15 points over both Fianna Fáil and, uh, and Fianna Gael. That remains the most likely outcome. My own view is that it is, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion. Uh, at, at this stage for a couple of reasons to touch on them very briefly. First of all, it's probably, assuming the current government stays together, it's three years before an election. And as we've, as we've seen repeatedly in recent years, uh, three years is a hell of a long time uh, in politics. So who knows what the political landscape looks like uh, in, uh, in three years. And secondly, I suppose, uh, you know, while Sinn Féin has enjoyed a consistent and large lead over its rivals. If you take Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as the one political force, and I know many Sinn Féin supporters refer to them as such, then that one political force is still considerably larger uh, in terms of support than, uh, than Sinn Féin is. But nevertheless, Sinn Féin is clearly in poll position at this stage uh, to lead the next government. I think it has two, root, two potential routes to government, and maybe we might ask Pierce in a little while uh, as to what his, uh, his his preference for that might be. I think one is to lead a government, uh, a true government of the left, which would bring in as coalition partners the Labour Party, Social Democrats, perhaps the Greens, and presumably some left-wing independents. I would be surprised to see the small parties of the radical left, uh, Solidarity People Before Profit, joining a gov- uh, joining a government. But I might be wrong about that. I'm not sure they're really interested in uh, in 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 being in a government at the uh, at this point. The other uh, the other potential route to government. Uh, is in coalition with Fianna Fáil. That would have, I guess, the advantage 
of, you know, being a, a two-party coalition rather than a several-party coalition and uh, might stand a chance of, uh, of you know, withstanding the events that, that batter any government and being more cohesive over the, the medium term. But that, of course, requires Fianna Fáil to alter the objections that it had to going into government with Sinn Féin at the last, uh, at the last election. As to what that government is like. I think that it's probably fair to say that Sinn Féin's economic and social policies are more mainstream centre-left in European terms than they have been in the past. So, you know, if you look back at Sinn Féin policy positions over over the space of a decade or two, you know, they're a lot more towards the centre. It's still identifiably centre-left. And look at the manifesto in the, na- the last general election, it was to, you know, to have a bigger state, to raise more taxes, to cut taxes on lower-income people, raise them on businesses and higher-income people and use that dividend to have greater social spending on things like social welfare and housing and so forth. So that trust of Sinn Féin's economic and social policy, I think, is is probably, you know, recognisably mainstream in centre-left terms. The other element of, uh, of, of a Sinn Féin government would be the United Ireland project. And that's, you know, that's something that is peculiar to this country, is different, is what one of the things that makes Sinn Féin different from other centre-left, uh, uh, centre-left parties, that nationalist element to it. And I think that would be an enormously important, indeed a central priority for Sinn Féin in, uh, in, the next, uh, in the next government. So both of those elements of a Sinn Féin government would represent very significant change for this country. So, Pierce, in relation to all that, would it be fair to say, and I'm going on polling evidence that that we've all seen, that if Sinn Féin have a good election the next time out and that results with Sinn Féin ending up in government, that good result will primarily have been because of its policies on housing and health, education and economics in general. But that, as Pat says, there are two key objectives for, for Sinn Féin as, a, as an organisation, and those economic and social ones are one part, and the other part is Irish unity. Are they of equal weight to each other when Sinn Féin goes into negotiating a programme for government and deciding what it will do with that government? I think you, um, regardless of which government is formed in the next, um, in the next after the next election, whenever that may be, the issue of uh, the project of national reunification is going to have to be part of those discussions. Because as time is going on, we are getting closer and closer to the issue that there will be a referendum on the issue of unity. It's provided for in the Good Friday Agreement of over two decades ago. Uh, Unionist leaders have acknowledged that this referendum is going to take place. Uh, Former leaders of the DUP and the UUP are challenging unionists to, to start preparing for this debate. The majority of people in the North in polling believe that the referendum will take place within five years or it should take place within five years. That's not to say that they would all vote for uh, unity. So this is going to happen. So the political system here needs to ensure that we are prepared for it. We have that we have collectively answered as many questions as possible because you could have a situation where people voted for uh, for for Irish unity without any preparation done 
in, by, 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 by the political system. The, the difficult questions that need to be asked and need to be answered in relation to how do you deal with an all-Ireland economy? What are the benefits? What are the challenges of that? How do you integrate an all-Ireland health system? How do you deal with your social welfare rates? More trickier questions and, and, and difficult questions, although many of them have been dealt with by the Good Friday Agreement, is how do you how how do you not only recognise but cherish uh, over a million people who have a different identity who see themselves as British? How are the emblems that are important to them uh, embraced in a in a New Ireland? Because it has to be a New Ireland. It can't be a six plus twenty six. So regardless of who is there, I think there is a growing understanding that the the this conversation. It will have to take place and it will have to be anchored at government level. The discussion has taken place. It's, it's rampant in the north and Brexit has accelerated that. It's, it's taken place also in the south. But you asked me a question in terms of our support. We can see from consistent polling uh, that a vast majority of people believe in, in Irish unity, believe in that New Ireland they may not believe that it's going to happen within a number of years. And people probably aren't as tuned in um, to, uh, here compared to the north of, of the changes that are taking place. You know, it's not by accident that unionism has lost its majority in three consecutive elections. It's not an accident, you know, that 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 uh, that Belfast is a nationalist city now, uh, that, that the demographics have changed, that the political uh, alliances in certain areas in, in the north have changed. And we can see that over and over again. So how that, you, that state was founded with an inbuilt majority of two-thirds unionism is no longer the case. And as time goes on, that is getting less and less for them. And that's why we need to prepare now. So yes, uh, the project of uh, national reunification would be part of any negotiations that we would have uh, in, in terms of, um, of, of a programme for government. We believe that the discussion, the talk, that there needs to be an all-party all committee set up in it. We believe that there needs to be a citizens' assembly uh, established to deal with the issues of, of, of uh, reunification. We need to be, believe that there needs to be far more research carried out, um, uh, you know, uh, funded by the government in relation to how you deal with the, the integration uh, or the creation of new systems. So all of that needs to, it needs to happen. But equally, uh, where people are at right here, right now, is the conversation we started off with. It's, it's how do I get to work if I'm, I'm charged two euro in, 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 in for, for diesel? Or how do I heat my home if home heat and oil has increased by by 700 euros since the start of the year and it didn't budget for that. Or as we're seeing at the minute that wheat prices are going through the roof. So therefore, you know, commodities like bread are going to increase in the shops. So inflation was very much driven uh, before the war in Ukraine in terms of energy and rent. Now we're going to see food prices. In particular, we see spike today, for example, in, 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 in oil, in cooking oil, which will feed into all types of uh, food products. And then we have the issues in terms of, uh, of fertilizers and of, of, of other agricultural products uh, and the challenges that that will face in the next couple of years. So they're the issues that we need to focus on. And Sinn Féin has been a redistributive party. We make no bones about that. We are a party of the centre-left. Uh, so our programme will be about expanding the state, making sure that the state steps in where the markets have failed, making sure that there is affordable housing, that there is fairer rents, that we cut rents uh, and that we put money back into people's pockets. We believe that there can be a public childcare system uh, and we can do that. We can take steps towards that in the next number of years by cutting the cost of childcare by two-thirds. Uh, we believe in workers' rights, so collective bargaining in our programme would be a right. You would have a right to be represented by your union and that the union would, ha would have the right to collective bargaining. And fair taxation would be a huge part of that. And Pat touched on that there. Uh, you know, where, where we believe 
that we shouldn't be uh, providing incentives for, for, for the wealthiest in society and, and, and to, to a certain degree, but actually that, that, the, that those that earn, for example, above €140,000 of an individual income actually have uh, a shoulder broad enough to, to carry an additional burden that will help us pay for the type of investments that everybody in society uh, benefits from. But there's one thing that's very clear. While we have to do a programme uh, and all our, our policies get costed and a lot of work and time goes into all of that, there's one thing that's very clear from us is we t- are taking nothing for granted. We know the volatility in terms of the uh, the political landscape, and we've seen that over, over many, many years now. But we're also very clear that the appetite for change, that hunger for change, has intensified since the election uh, over two years ago, that people are demanding more change now. I think we've an excellent front bench. I think people are seeing the talent that Sinn Féin has uh, in, in terms of some of our new TDs. And, you know, the election matters. We've seen that in terms of the last election. We went into that election. RTE wanted us, didn't even want to give us a platform uh, in the debate because they argued we were we, we were too small of a party. The election matters, and the election can go one way or another way. Uh, so we, we're we're full of ambition here. Uh, our job is. Uh, to to implement the policies that we are putting forward for the Irish people. The best place to do that is from government buildings. And that's why we're getting ready to stand more candidates, to have our policies uh, fine-tuned and ready to take on that big debate. And it will be a bigger debate than ever before because what 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 the issue, what the last election did was it realigned Irish politics. You now have a left and a right. You now have what is or a centre-left and a centre-right. You now have what most European countries have taken for granted for the last 100 years. So there is a realignment uh, and uh, and I think that realignment will benefit uh, Sinn Féin in the arguments that we put forward in the next election. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with Piers Doherty after this. Andrew, welcome back. I'm here with uh, with Pierce Doherty and with Pat Leahy. Pat is listening to Pierce there before the break. You've made the point on more occasions than I care to remember that the process of electing a government in Ireland is a two-step process. That first there's the election of the parties to the Dáil, and then there's increasingly in recent years a, a lengthy period of negotiation uh, which leads to to government formation in the end. And one of the things about that is, of course, that um, is that manifestos never get fully realised because there's that negotiation that takes place, which may perhaps give a bit of cover um, to parties sometimes when they don't necessarily deliver everything that they promised on the on the doorsteps during the election campaign itself. But I wonder, there is, you know, some um, observers and critics have made a point about, about Sinn Féin's manifesto in 2020, that um, the question of whether it stacks up, the party has, has made a lot of efforts in recent years to future-proof its, its proposals with the Department of Finance, but there's still a sort of question remains that whether they're actually deliverable, I think. Isn't that fair? Uh, yeah, two point. I mean, I, I, I think you're right, you know, that Sinn Féin has done an awful lot of work in recent years, much of it done by Pierce, whose performance as finance spokesman is, you know, generally acknowledged even by o- other parties to be one of Sinn Féin's strengths. And he's been very careful to, uh, you know, to make sure that individual policy proposals are costed by the Department of Finance. And that is in that is entirely true, and they're tra- quite transparent uh, about that. What is more difficult, I suppose, to to project or you know to to peer into the future about is what would be 
the cumulative effect of the redistributive policies that Sinn Féin was talking about, for example, in the last general election. So, you know, it, it is possible to work out if, you know, if you're going to increase taxes on people earning over 100,000 by X amount, it is possible to say how much that is going to, uh, it's possible to say how much that's going to raise. But if you do that in concert with all the other measures that, you know, Sinn Féin proposed, for example, on uh, on on getting rid of tax reliefs or reducing tax reliefs for private pensions. What sort of an effect that has behaviorally on uh, on 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 the econ- individuals and uh, and therefore collectively on the economy? And that is, you know, costing manifestos is at the one time you know, an exact process because it takes all, you know, the individual uh, costings and it is possible. I was looking uh, back before this interview of some of our coverage of um, uh, of Sinn Féin's manifesto at the last general election and the global terms would be, you know, there would be 2.4 billion in tax reductions for the lower pay, 3.8 billion uh, in tax increases, uh, mostly on the better off and uh, on uh, on businesses, but so it is possible to put those sort of sums together. What is much more speculative, I suppose, is once you do all those things, what is the cumulative effect on them? And you know, we pointed out uh, during the last election campaign that there were some aspects of uh, of of Sinn Fein's projections which tended to, in particular, there was some. Uh, there were some changes to the way intellectual property is taxed, which seemed uh, to us, remember myself, Cliff Taylor writing about it at the time, seemed to uh, to give multi-year effects to something that was more likely to be a one-off change for uh, for a lot of companies. But that having been said, I think by the standards of the genre, Sinn Féin has been very upfront about the costing of uh, of its policies. And I think it is... Uh, to be commended on that. The point that you make, I think, is perhaps a more relevant one, Hugh, which is that these sort of things can be negotiated in that post-election, pre-government formation phase. And in one respect, this is the difference, I think, between the social and economic programme that Sinn Féin proposes and the nationalist programme that Sinn Féin proposes. So if if Pierce is after the next election sitting down opposite whoever it may be, Ivana Bacic or, or, Michael, uh, or Michael McGrath, and they're negotiating on what the increase in tax uh, on higher earners is going to be. He might have to trade his 5% for 3% for concessions elsewhere. That's the sausage making of agreeing a programme for government. But the United Ireland stuff is a lot less tradable, a lot less fungible um, uh, than, uh, than that. And uh, you know, I think that's going to be one of the things uh, that make that process, if uh, Sinn Féin are involved in it, it, it's going to make it very interesting indeed. How that United Ireland, the push for United Ireland, is translated into a programme for government that other parties can live with. But what Pierce, and sorry, Pierce, I will come back to you in just a sec. But what Pierce described there just a couple of minutes ago, which was in relation to a citizens' assembly, uh, Oireachtas committees, debates of various sorts, painting a picture of what a post unification Ireland would look like, and presumably some element of um, political pressure to speed up that process. 
Are those would that, those be deal breakers for those other party leaders you just mentioned? No, I think they sure any government will agree to as many citizens assemblies as it has to to get a program for uh, for government agreed. I'm talking about something more profound than those sort of uh, than those sort of things, and that is what I think would be a characteristic uh, characteristic of a Sinn Fein uh, led government. Peers can tell us uh, is the reorienting of Irish government policy towards the question of United Ireland to its highest priority. In other words, that Irish political and diplomatic efforts all over the world, particularly in Washington, London, Brussels, would be directed towards pressurising the British government because under the Good Friday Agreement, as Pierce well knows, only the British government gets to call a unity referendum. I'm not sure those... Uh, any imaginable British government would see the conditions there for it in the foreseeable uh, future. Uh, I may be wrong about that. But that would be the great priority for uh, for an Irish government's foreign policy. And that would be a big change. Piers? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, the, you know, the, the Good Friday Agreement is an international document and therefore can be judicially reviewed. It's one of the discussions we would have had with former uh, secretaries of state. So uh, for secretary of state not to trigger uh, a unity referendum when the belief would be that there would be support for that in the north would actually could be challenged in the court and could force the secretary of state's hands. So what we need to do um, is uh, from from a state's point of view, and, and particularly those of us in all parties here, but at least ascribe to the belief that they believe in Irish unity. And what we need to do is actually have the discussion, have the answers about what that will mean. There are fears for people who, uh, you know, who would see themselves as as unionists, but are open to the idea of of, of a united Ireland. But they're, they, they, they fear the idea of what does that mean for my health system? What does that mean for free access to GP care? What does that mean for my business? Uh, or what does that mean for farming? So those type of discussions have to be framed and argued. So from this state's point of view, we can actually have an impact on the views of people in the north, which can tilt the balance in terms of triggering that referendum. And, and let's be clear, there are other, like we're in the middle of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, an invasion by Russia in terms of Ukraine. That is the priority of all our diplomatic. And if Sinn Féin were in government, that would be the priority at this point in time is about how we can increase the sanctions, how we can stop the war, how we can use the diplomatic channels. But this is happening. The process of Irish unity is happening. The danger here is that the people get so far ahead of the political system and that we end up with a situation like Brexit where people voted one direction, but the political system had no uh, prior work done in relation to that. So I think, as I said, I think there's an acknowledgement that, uh, that that this needs to happen and now is the time uh, for, for this to happen. So yes, we would want to see a referendum within five years. Yes, we would like to see a government make those points. Um, but there are other issues that, uh, that, that are equally of priority and not just that they're equally of priority. They're also they're intertwined with the issue of Irish unity. So fixing our health system, making our health system a single tier and free at the point of use has a big impact in relation to the views of some people in the North who may be open to the idea of Irish unity but do not want to lose their NHS. Making sure that we have you know, proper uh, supports in terms of low-income workers uh, for, for you know, our childcare system, for example, uh, making sure that we have rents that are reasonable. All of these, um, all of these will have uh, impacts in, in, in relation to that 
debate that will take place, that is taking place, but that hasn't really been started officially yet in relation to the future, the constitutional nature of the the, the island. In relation to uh, some of the other questions in terms of patent, I always find that, you know, when we put forward a policy, sometimes the journalists, and I'm not saying it's Pat or Hugh or whoever, but... It more times than not, we put forward a proposal and the first question that comes, how are you going to pay for that? You know, it's just this, this notion that is in a lot of journalists' heads that you have to ask Sinn Féin how you're going to pay for it. We have the answers of how we will pay for it. But I never hear the same scrutiny in terms of some of the other political parties. And I think that sometimes there's an in, inbuilt um, bias there, if, if I may say. You know, like we've had Fine Gael go out in an election campaign in their manifesto promising to abolish the USC, over 5 billion euro of tax cuts that is not, was never credible, could never ever be delivered. They were holding the, the posters uh, for photo shoots um, and they, they campaigned on that agenda and we took a different position. Despite the fact that, you know, many in the media and our political opponents will call us populist, we took a different position and said, no, you cannot abolish USC. You can't simply do it. Uh, what we need to do is take more low-income workers out of the USC, but €5 billion euro of tax in our tax, uh, in our tax net is not possible. Uh, and, and that wasn't, that was a difficult decision to take. Again, when the, in a pre, the, not the last election, but the one before it, both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael had miscalculated the amount of money that was available to spend over a course of five years by over €2 billion. Euro. We were the only party who got it right. But yet we're always the party that is scrutinised as in, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? Um, and and that's, you know, that's, that's, I, that's part of the territory. We deal with that. That's why we probably, as an opposition party, have set a standard for ourselves in a bar that no other opposition party across Europe does. We talk to other political parties at an EU level and they, they think we're mad in terms of what we do, that all our policies are costed, all our policies are, are um, provided in terms of um, by the department, each d- department or the Department of Finance. And if the department was available to actually look at the intertwined nature of individual policies, I would be open for that as well. Because the one thing that we want to do, and it's not just about reaching the bar for those that will ask these questions in media, is there, if we get the opportunity, and that's a big if, if the public um, comes out and support us in the numbers uh, that we need to see in the next election and that we're in a position to be uh, forming uh, the next government, we want to make sure that the policies that we're putting forward are deliverable. And that's that's crucial for us. Uh, so that's why we put so much time into developing our policy, costing our policy, and looking at then the practical implications of how would this work? Where are the barriers? Where are, they, where are the, tra- the traps that could be set? Um, and, and what are the obstacles and how do you overcome them? And, and a lot of work does go into that because we're very conscious that if we do get that opportunity on behalf of the Irish people, then there will be a huge expectation on us to deliver. Uh, and that's an expectation that we want to meet and surpass. Could I ask you then about one uh, one proposal from Sinn Féin, one policy from Sinn Féin, which has been criticised as being populist and uh, criticised from the left as, as well as from the centre or the centre-right, which is in relation to the abolition of property tax. We know that there are increasing disparities of wealth in Western societies, including in Ireland. We know that that's very much located in the fact that some people hold assets and hold capital and some people don't. And we have an increasing generational divide in that issue when it comes to when it comes to property in Ireland. And it's quite possible that the current property tax is not satisfactory and would need to be adjusted and that you should do carve-outs for people who are on lower incomes or, or whatever it might be. But Sinn Féin's proposal is to give back that money to the people who live in red brick houses on Aylesbury Road and in Dawkey and to raise that tax somewhere else. And in a country like Ireland where so much of individual assets are held in property, is that not regressive? 
No, I, I don't believe so because it has to look at, it has you have to look at that alongside a, a, a proper wealth tax. So property is a form of wealth, as is other types of of wealth, and a net wealth tax would actually capture those type of high end property, high value property uh, that that you talk about. But for many people, people have a mortgage on their property, so it's uh, it's 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 not an asset of three hundred thousand euro. It may be a bit less. Some people may be in negative equity, although less likely now in in, in terms of the, the 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 high cost that we're seeing. So we're very clear that we don't believe in that type of tax. It was the wrong type of tax that was designed, and we should be looking at net wealth taxes uh, that are fairer. That actually look at your net wealth when you look at the debt that you have on those assets uh, and what is left and then apply it uh, uh, appropriately. Um, But there's also other counter uh, measures there where we want to bring in the second home charge. Uh, So there is other charges in terms of property. But it's quite interesting and and, uh, look, it's a fair point, Hugh, in terms of what you're saying and I believe that that's a fair approach. But if you look at where the government are going and what they've signed up to, they want to increase inheritance tax up to half half a million euro. Now, you, you mentioned rightly about the disparity in terms of wealth across the state. And one of the biggest ways in terms of you get that gap in terms of the haves and the haves not is actually inheritance. And to increase it from the level where it is at today, about three, four, five or somewhere around that, up to half a half a million euro, it's actually increasing that divide uh, and actually putting more money into people's pockets. So this is somebody who inherits, inherits half a million euro and they shouldn't pay anything in relation to it. They can sell it in the morning and get half a million euro and put it into their bank account and they pay no tax. So, you know, when you when you analyse what we're seeing in terms of property tax, and we hear that coming from our political opponents, you also you have the same accusation that can be made in a greater way, in a sharper way, in relation to actually people who inherit net wealth, not uh, you know wealth that has debt on it, but actually net wealth. And what the government want to do is actually allow them to keep more of that. And I think that is uh, regressive and is one of the things that we would do uh, if we were in government, that we wouldn't actually increase capital acquisition tax to those type of levels. Now, some people, Pat, listening there to what Pierce is saying there, will very much welcome the fact that they may have a choice at the next election, a clearer choice between um, the point he's making there right now about the asset holding classes and a very different position from, say, Fine Gael, for example, that you can actually have, you know, that you get away from what some people characterise as the mushy centre of uh, of Irish politics to, to real choices. Yeah, up to a point. Um, I, I think there's no doubt that, as both you and, and Piers have said, that there is a clearer left-right divide in Irish politics than ever before. But something else is happening as well, which will cloud that picture a little, I think. And that is that, you know, OK, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are clearly not the size they once were, you know, but they're still, you know, they're still reasonably sizable. And the reason that Fianna Fáil, one of the reasons that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have dominated politics for so long in this country, there's never been a government without, uh, uh, you know, without one of them in it, is that they have demonstrated uh, the skill of being able to tack with the kind of ideological and political wind, Fianna, Fianna Fáil particularly, but I think we've seen it in Fianna Gael uh, during the the last number of years that they've been in government as well, that they have moved to the centre and they have moved to the left. As I think the centre of gravity of Irish politics has moved discernibly leftward in the last decade and a half, so Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in government have tacked to the left as well. Now, some of that is in 
response to particular events, you know, so in response to the pandemic, you know, I'm sure, um, you know, if you told Pierce uh, and anybody else at the time of the last general uh, general election that the state was going to expand by the degree that it has done during COVID, during COVID, um, he'd have assumed that he was going to be in, uh, in 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 government at the head of a left wing coalition. But in fact, it's you know the centre centre right parties um, that have uh, that have done that, and you know we see it in. Uh, you know, in, in specific policy terms, we see it in an area like housing, where Fianna Fáil uh, has, and uh, Fianna Fáil minister has adopted many of the approaches and the policies espoused by Sinn Féin in terms of much greater public investment in housing. So Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have tended to be good at that. And I don't think that you will see them, particularly in Fianna Fáil's Case and the whole question of how Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael distinguish, them, uh, distinguish themselves from each other during the next uh, election campaign uh, is, 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 is a fascinating one, but I guess not what we're talking about today. But I don't think you'll see Fianna Fáil run on a centre-right, uh, on, on, you know, an avowedly centre-right platform. I think you will see Fianna Fáil inhabiting the mushy centre because they know... That's where most of the votes are. Last question, if you wouldn't mind, Piers. Um, do you accept Pat's thesis? I think he said it earlier. I think I would hold it as well, that this government is likely to run its term or mo- pretty much all of its term anyway. And is Sinn Féin planning accordingly? And if so, within a time frame of that sort, we mentioned a couple of times how how quickly things are moving in the international scene and uh, and at home at the moment. Do you envisage many changes in the manifesto which you'll be drawing up for the next election from the last one? Okay, I think there's kind of two parts to that question. So um, there's no doubt that Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Green Party will be planning for a full term. Whether that's achievable or not um, is highly questionable. Um, I I think if the government don't respond adequately to the pressures that people are facing during this time of acute inflation, particularly in certain commodities, then they will be in difficult uh, in, in a difficult spot. Um, and our job uh, as a party of opposition is to pressurise the government. We want an election, we want to be the government, we want to deliver in our policies. But during this period also, we want to enact change. Uh, so Pat talked about how parties will start to adopt some of the clothing that we have, but maybe not not, not the full set. And, and you're seeing that already, like later on today, I have a piece of legislation, the Moneylenders Bill, that will cap the interest rate that moneylenders can charge on consumers. I published that six years ago. We've been pushing that at different stages uh, throughout the doll. The government were resisting moving on that. And now because it's going to finish committee stage today, which means it's coming to the final stage, we could put it to report stage next week. The government have rushed through their own legislation to do what I want to do, but in a watered down way. They did the same thing with the lobbying bill. Myself and Red Farrell published uh, because it was moving at advanced speed. Then they did the then they did uh, uh, they, they did their own version, the dual pricing approach, and what what I did with the central bank over two years ago. Again, the government tried to claim, kind of claim some of that. So, and that's that's okay, you know, because our job in opposition is to enact change as well. And if the government want to take the you know put their stamp on it, that's that that's fine. A bit petty, but fine. Um, in in relation to the type of manifesto that you would put forward um, two years ago compared to one that you may put forward in three years' time if that's where the election is, your manifesto always has to change. 
like not only does your manifesto change, our alternative budget change, changes. The mo- most of the core areas remain the same. Um, but you have to always be conscious of, of where we're at. So in two years' time, Hugh, we could be in a recession. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, we don't know. None of us know what's happening or how long uh, the impact of, of, of this war and this evasion in Ukraine is, is going to last. None of us know how the sanctions will play out in the, in the, in the medium to long term. Uh, the issues in terms of commodity, nickel and other commodities now, none of us know in that. So you have to be kind of light-footed to, to respond uh, to, to different um, pressures that are on, 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 on society at any given time. But does that mean that the core areas change? No, because the core area, areas actually are probably more greater um, than than ever before. So housing becomes a, a more bigger issue because as inflation uh, takes hold, then we do need to more than ever reduce the cost of rents and re- make sure that there's affordable housing. We do need to reduce the cost of childcare. Uh, and, and, and our job has been to convince, and I've always said that, I've said this at political meetings for many, many years, look, if, if Sinn Féin isn't succeeding in, 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 in the polls or at elections, it is our fault. And it is our fault that we haven't convinced enough people that what we're seeing is possible. Because what we're seeing, people want. People want a decent home at a reasonable price. People don't want to be ripped off with rent. People don't want to have to pay a second mortgage for childcare. People want, generally... Uh, those that are are most in need to be protected and sheltered, and for people who have broader shoulders to be able to pay a f- their 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 fair their their fair way. So people want that. What we were failing to do for a long period of time, in my opinion, is to convince a greater number of people that that was possible. And what we've done uh, over the last number of uh, years is actually uh, is break through that. As somebody said to me after the last election, they says, "Pierce, I walked into that ballot uh, to that polling station and cast my ballot for change." But little did I believe that half a million people were doing the same thing at the same day. Now I believe it's possible. They now know it's possible. They now know it's no longer, uh, you know, well, wouldn't it be nice to have a left-wing government? They now know it's possible. But we need to stand more candidates. We need to make sure that our arguments and our our counter-strategies are are sharp. uh, And we need to win more and more hearts and minds of, of, of the Irish public. I think that's all possible. Uh, I think two years ago, we were at uh, a lot smaller numbers, probably about 20% lower or 15% lower than we are at the polls. There's nothing to say that we can't continue to grow. Um, and, and, and that's where we want to be. But as I said, we take nothing for granted and, 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 and definitely we don't take the, the, the Irish public for granted. But we need to get our um, part of it ready. And that's what we're doing at the, at the minute. So yeah, the manifesto, if, if it requires, it will, it will adapt to the to the circumstances that you, that that are there at that point in time, the same way that your priorities had to change during the COVID pandemic. At that time, it was let's support businesses, let's make sure jobs were supported, let's make sure that people who lost their job were protected, let's make the investment in healthcare, and that means other things that you wanted to do at that same time had to go on the back and the back burner for that period. And that's what politics is about: it's responding to the crisis sometimes, but it's also making sure that you're planning for the future. Pat, there seems to me to have been a step change both in the performance of the Sinn Féin front bench since the election that stepped up and very clearly being, as it is mathematically obviously anyway, the the, the main party of opposition, but even in the way in which those spokespeople are regarded and, and reported on in the media, that Sinn Féin looks an awful lot more like a government in waiting than it ever did previously. What does it need to do to build on that or copper fasten that or build further on it as, as Pierce is suggesting there in advance of the next election? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think I remember the launch of the manifesto in the last general election campaign, and it was, you know, the 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 people who were fronting that are going to be the people that you would expect to see, you know, fronting Sinn Fein's campaign in the next uh, in the next general election uh, as well. You know, himself and Owen Brand, Mary Lou, you know, people like yeah, Louise O'Reilly and Matt Carthy. Uh, David Cullinan, people who are kind of, you're right, they're becoming, you know, looking like a government in waiting. Partly be, that's because they are the main party of opposition now, whereas in the last general, uh, in the last dog, somewhat slightly confused situation where Fianna Fáil was supporting the government through the confidence and supply agreement, but the leader of the opposition in the Dáil, sitting across from uh, Leo Varadkar, was the leader of, uh, of of Fianna Fáil, whereas now the leader of the opposition is Mary Lou Macdonald. And that comes with not just parliamentary prominence, but also a much greater greater media reach. And I think that's one of the things that is... Um, uh, that you know is feeding into that sense of government in uh, in 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 waiting from from Sinn Fein's point of view. I suppose that's kind of a, a a virtuous circle. I think if the party is to be successful at maintaining the sort of support levels that it's seeing uh, in the polls at the moment, and perhaps growing those, I I think it will have to. As you come closer to the general election, is it will have to spell out uh, in 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 clear and relatable terms to swing voters what the change means. I don't think it will be enough for many of those voters simply to say that Sinn Fein is the party of change. Notwithstanding the fact that change is one of the great tropes. Uh, of uh, of 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 modern politics everywhere. Show me a politician that doesn't want to campaign as a uh, as a change. I'll show you a politician that's not going to to win an election. So there's no doubt that you know Sinn Fein has you know uh, if not quite an exclusive lock, it has a strong claim to that brand to be the party of change. But what it will need to do for many swing voters who may be nervous of the party's uh nervous of the party's economic policies and uh not entirely comfortable with its nationalist policies is it will have to spell out what change means change to what and i think that's the task that faces pierce and his colleagues over the next 2 to 3 years uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, but we'll undoubtedly be returning to this subject over the months and years to come. Indeed, thanks very much to Piers for joining us today. Thanks also to Pat for being with us. Uh, Jennifer Ryan was our producer. JJ Vernon was our engineer. Thanks to both of them. We'll be back very soon indeed. Remember, you can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, though, thanks very much for listening. 